supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1420, WBSN presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Wiseman and Matt Costner. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. Andrew Lake is also here in the studio. Andy, we do have an open mic over here. If you are interested in joining in the program, we'd love to have you. I just won four dollars. You won four dollars on a Vermont scratch ticket. Travel Vermont to get it. Well worth it. Well worth it. You never know when you're going to be in Vermont chasing one of your uh, many paranormal adventures. Champ, it is a champ lottery card. Yes, we our thanks to Matt Costa for, for picking those up for us when he was driving all over the world recently. Did you actually see Champ, the Lake Champlain monster at all while you were uh, while you were out and about? Uh, I did not. I actually is, is that why you went there to try to look for Champ? I wanted to go, but it was like a little farther than where I was that I wanted to go. So it was another hour and a half out of the way. So yeah, that's I didn't go, but I do want to go because I hear they they have a. Uh, a fine museum and everything up there. Well, and, if you ever do get up, and there. I do want to, I'll scuba dive down there and see what's in the murky waters of Lake Champlain. I'll go with you. Yeah, let's go. Let's if you this. if you do go, do you have a spear gun? Uh, I have access to one. Yeah. Yes, excellent. <laughs> if you do go, bring one of those um, waterproof cages. Yep. With your tape recorder in it, and if you. Happen to come across Champ, then uh, I expect an interview for the show. All right. Well, Dip. I saw the Ocean State Paracon video. That came out great that you put up on Spooky South Coast. Did it eventually go up on Spooky Uh Spooky Yeah, South you actually had, you had it set for private, uh, yes. but I, I fixed it. Thank you. So, uh, but if you if you could you know do something similar with the Lake Champlain monster. Oh, yeah, definitely. That'd be much appreciated. I'll have to get him on camera, though. Right, exactly. I think you'd be game for it. Yeah. Well, we are here to talk about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. Uh, there was some, some issues going on here at the station a little bit earlier. Uh, so we won't have Spooky TV for you, but we will have the WBSM stream going. If you're listening uh, and you want to join in the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com, you can do so. Basically, I think what happened was there was a microburst here this morning. I was driving here uh, at about 5 o'clock this morning from my morning show, and I, it was lightning like I'd never seen before. It was like just constant flashing. Like it didn't stop. And uh, then torrential downpour, and uh, ML Barron from the West Island Weather Station actually called in uh, to the morning show and said that he thought that it could be a microburst, and he was awaiting confirmation from the National Weather Service on that. So I'm just going to assume that he got it because it was bad. And that was just, I mean, I was on 195. So I can only imagine how much worse it was you know, down Sconnecat Neck yeah. and down West Island because the storm itself actually happened offshore, the worst of it. So if that was just what we got here on land, uh, it could have been far worse. So there were some, some things going on here. So the engineer is on his way down to fix that. Hopefully he doesn't have to have us get off the air to do so. But we're Hopefully. we're more than happy to do that because our guest, Jeff Holder, who is going to be joining us, um, I don't see him online yet. He's supposed to be joining us via Skype, so I'm hoping that uh, he will jump on and join us. That's the problem with, <laughs> with trying to get somebody overseas is that uh, it's like the middle of the night for him, I think. 
I don't know. You guys are smarter than me, Andy and Matt. You yeah, do the math. Five hour difference. Yeah, between here and France. Yeah, yeah. So, so right now it's like three o'clock in the morning for him. Yeah. So you know, hopefully he didn't fall asleep waiting for us, uh, and he'll be joining us to talk about his new book, Poltergeist Over Scotland. And if you've ever read any of Jeff's works before, he has a long, long list of works that he's in, uh, including the guy, you know, the guy to mysterious insert region of Scotland and England here. Um, also other books such as uh, Paranormal Perthshire, Paranormal Glasgow, The Little Book of Glasgow, Haunted Dundee, uh, Haunted St. Andrews. And we had him on in the past to talk about his book, uh, The Jacobites and the Supernatural. So, and, and we also talked with him about Scottish body snatching, grave robbers. I mean, if it's strange and unusual and it happens across the pond, Jeff knows all about it, especially in Scotland. Uh, so hopefully he'll be able to get in touch with us tonight and we can have that discussion on the air about poltergeist. But if not, we'll book him back on again for another time because we've had a pretty busy couple of weeks here the last few weeks. Very busy. We had our Legend Trips event at Fort Tabor last week, and that went very well. Our thanks to everybody who came out and bought a ticket and helped support the fort. We actually raised more money uh, for Fort Tabor with this event than we did in the past. And we're going to announce tonight, publicly at least, where our next event is. We've given some hints about it online. But uh, we'll be at the USS Salem in Quincy on August 31st. That's going to be our next Legend Trips event. It, uh, it'll be up there and on sale for tickets in the next couple of days. But already, just in the pre-sale alone, we've, we've sold a, a good amount of the tickets. We've probably sold uh, more than a quarter of the tickets that we have available already. That quickly? Yes. People want to get on the Salem. They're excited to get on there uh, under the Legend Trips format. So should be exciting. I know that, Moniz, you've had a chance to be there before. Oh, I've been on it several times. Andy, how about yourself? Yeah, it's in my uh, book, uh, Ghost Hunting Southern New England. Uh, Matter of fact, Matt was with me. uh, Sarah Coombs came along, and uh, we uh, got uh, a a tour by one of the the docents. And uh, it's an amazing place with some great stories. And what type of of phenomena did you hear about going there? Because, you know, I've seen the Ghost Hunters episode where they talk about the EVPs they've captured in the in the birthing room of women apparently screaming, get it out or get out. And uh, there's been reports of uh, the older gentleman who was a tour guide who was seen yes, yes. wandering around. Uh, and the, uh, the anchor. Uh, Folk uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So w- what kind of things well, uh, did, um, did you well, write about in the well, book? Well, uh, one of the stories I wrote about, um, one of the, uh, the, the head docents was um, – uh, conducting a uh, ghost hunt with a, uh, a group that had, you know, paid to be on the ship. It was a little private group. And um, he was up in the uh, the captain's uh, officer's mess, I should say. And they had a psychic hang out with him. And she said, uh, there's something in the room with us and I don't like it. And uh, a chair went sliding across the officer's mess. And moments after that, um, they clearly heard a woman scream in the uh, passageway outside. And the funny story was, he said, the... Uh, the uh, the co-founder of the ghost hunting group that was there, the wife, uh, suddenly got in touch with her husband on the walkie-talkie and said, uh, let's go home. I've had enough of the Salem. So the, uh, this guy is, was telling uh, Matt and I that the, the place at times can be very, very active. Uh, seems to be uh, ghosts of um, the tragedy with, with uh, the Greece re- rescue yeah. after the earthquake in the 50s. Because um, you know, uh, not too many uh, military men died. I think once one day with the, the ship is in mothballs, a guy fell down the uh, elevator yep. shaft. Yeah, and, the elevator shaft for yeah. where they uh, have the helicopter that used to be yeah, on the right. back end of it. But uh, a lot of civilian deaths. A lot yeah. of civilian deaths after that earthquake. 
So it, it seems like it's a, a place that is rife with paranormal activity and that we're going to have a, a lot to investigate on August 31st. So if you want to join us, legendtrips.com is the website. Remember, uh, a portion of all ticket sales goes toward uh, maintaining these historic properties that we go to. And to date, we've raised over $10,000 wow. for so many of these historic That's cons. incredible. And really, I mean, when you look at some of these uh, events that take place uh, from other companies, and I don't, I don't want to bash what other people are doing uh, in terms of their event strategies, but they bring in a lot of celebrities, we'll call them. They bring in a lot of outside guests. And with us, it's all about the location. You're saying that their tours are more top-heavy? Uh, I'm, I'm just going to say that when you bring in that element, it's great to be able to to meet Jason and Grant and to investigate alongside Jason and Grant. But when you have them at an event, everybody's so uh, amped up to have these celebrities there with them that it kind of takes away from the investigation. So it's like I got to hang out with Jason and Grant at this cool place, and you're walking away with memories more about that than you are about the location itself. And with Legend Trips events, of course, we make the event the star, and we make the location the star. So we're giving you the best opportunity that we can for you to get in there and investigate parts of the location that you might not ever get to. So, Well, I have to say, most people have not been disappointed. These places do you know, provide activity. And what makes me happy is when you can have an event where, you know, sometimes the activity doesn't want to play along. You guys know that. You've been oh, in yeah. this field oh, for a yeah. long time. You can't always guarantee that you're going to have something happen. But even if we have a night like that where it's slow on the activity end, uh, and then we put the next event up on sale and I see five, six, three, four, you know, people ordering multiple tickets, people who might have come as a couple before now bringing yep. their friends for the next one. Yeah. And it makes you feel good because it means that they felt like they had the best opportunity possible to investigate that location, even if they didn't get any activity taking place. So uh, hopefully uh, a lot of people will take advantage of this USS Salem uh, event because they do a lot of ghost hunts on that ship. There are a lot of opportunities to get on there, but I can tell you that none of them are like the Legend Trips way. No, not at so. all. How, how many percentage would you say are return or repeat customers? I would say that we have like better than 80% return rate. That's phenomenal. Right. And for anything in the tourism industry, you know, that's that's pretty pretty impressive. Yeah. Because normally people will go once and they'll spend the money and they'll say, okay, you know, I've had that experience. But with these events, it just seems like people want to keep having those experiences. So uh, I believe our guest, uh, Jeff Holder, is on the line. Uh, let's see if we can bring him up here. We'll do this fashion straight dial way. Hello, Jeff. Testing, testing. Hey, we can hear you loud and clear. How's it going? Tim, can you hear me? It's Jeff Holder here. Yes, can you hear us? Hold on here. Let me do this. Jeff, can you? Jeff, can you hear me now? I can indeed, Tim. Good, good, uh, good evening. How are oh, you doing? Good, good. We've got you on the air. Thank you for joining us. No problem at all. And uh, we, we're very always, always a pleasure to be here. We're very excited to talk to you. Of course, you had to get up in the middle of the night to do so. Thank you for that. That's okay. No problem. So I, I have uh, the, the new book here, Poltergeist Over Scotland, and I want to get more in depth. We've talked about Poltergeist a little bit with you in the past, but I really want to get into this topic because I, I think it's one of the most misunderstood aspects of the paranormal world. Yes, I would quite agree, yes. 
So when you decided to start putting this book together, uh, you reference, of course, uh, Harry Price and his work with Poltergeist over England. Was that kind of the inspiration for you to put this work together? It was definitely the inspiration for the for the name. Uh, Poltergeist over England is such a classic um, work. It's the book that popularized the word uh, poltergeist in certainly in Britain, um, and uh, it's, it's a great title. And no one had ever written a history of Scottish poltergeists before, and so I thought it was time to do so. I mean, five hundred years of history is uh, there's there's got to be a lot of poltergeist cases to go over. Yes, so I found 134 cases from the 17th century through to 2012. So I, I arranged them chronologically because it seemed to me that poltergeist behavior, although it's consistent throughout the centuries, does tend to develop in relation to the way human society and technology develops. And so we can learn something by looking at the, the sort of the chronological sweep. So even though a 17th century poltergeist behaves very similarly to a 21st century poltergeist, there are some things that are different. For, example, for the obvious things, you know, that poltergeists learn to manipulate electricity, they learn to manipulate telephones, then mobile phones. You know, so you can see those developments. And also there are changes in, in Scottish society that seem to be reflected in, in poltergeist behavior as well. So I thought that was uh, a worthwhile pursuit. Well, I mean, we should probably start out uh, for people that might not be familiar, but a, a poltergeist is significantly different than a ghost. It seems to be. Um, <clears throat> poltergeist activities tend to be focused on physical phenomena. Um, uh, and, you know, in, 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 and whereas ghosts and hauntings tend to, tend to have perhaps what do you might call visual phenomena, sort of, you know, phantoms, as well as things as, such as temperature changes. Um, with both guys, the f phenomena is, is less on anything that are visual and more things on the, on the physical manipulation of, of the world. So this will include um, noises, bangs, raps, um, sometimes voices, sometimes communications. Um, it, it, they, they seem to be able to manipulate water, sometimes fire, smoke, um, they pollute food. They throw things. They assault people. They like they like throwing stones. Um, and in on farms, in Scottish farms, they like to throw clods of peat. They sometimes attack animals. Sometimes scratch humans. They can be. They can range between what you might call mischievous and outright malign. Uh, sometimes almost almost uh, murderous. And um, so it seems to me that they are distinct from. Uh, ghosts. On the other hand, there is a significant overlap. There's a sort of spectrum, if you like. And um, in about a quarter of poltergeist cases that I, I looked at, there was some kind of apparition involved, although the apparition wasn't the main focus. And a, a small number of classic hauntings have a, have a degree or a small element of poltergeist activity. So it seems to me that there's a, a spectrum between the classic haunting and the outright poltergeist, and somewhere in the middle they meet. But if you look at a, if you look at a, a typical poltergeist case, it's about bang crash wallop, and if you look at a typical ghost cases, about apparitions. And with the poltergeist case, uh, you mentioned the technology, and is it that it's easier to get people's attention by the use of technology, or for some reason uh, these poltergeists are drawn to uh, whatever might be the technology of the day? I, I think it's the latter. Mm -hmm. Whatever people, whatever degree uh, uh, of technolo technological attainment that the human society has, has achieved, 
uh, the poltergeist seemed to be able to adapt to that. Um, so, um, uh, you, you know, in, in obviously in, in sort of sort of pre-modern technology times, uh, what you find is is a, a concentration on on farm implements. For instance, most poltergeists uh, turn up in farms because most people lived in the countryside, um, and so uh, the uh, communication works then. But then, then you find this interesting thing that when um, um, ministers of the church turn up say, in the 17th century, for example, the poltergeist will start quoting Latin at them. Now, poltergeists these days tend not to speak Latin uh, because, you know, generally it's, you know, that's why it's a dead language. Um, no pun intended. Uh, yes, indeed. But, um, it, it, was, it, was, it was very much of, of the period. And then when um, sort of telephones became commonplace, only when telephones became commonplace, when people started to have telephones in their home, do poltergeists start to manipulate telephones? Electricity comes a bit earlier, um, um, and but prior to that, some poltergeists can manipulate uh, fire or smoke. Uh, and when it, when it comes to water, some poltergeists seem to be able to throw water around or drip from the ceiling. But then, when you get to the sort of middle of the 20th century, and people start to have indoor plumbing, poltergeists know how to flush a toilet or, you know, turn a tap on. You know, and then in the, you know, there's, there was a case just a few years ago in Britain where the poltergeist was communicating via mobile phones where the, where the battery had been turned off. You know, so mobile, the mobile phone was off, the battery was out, and they were still using the phone to communicate. So they do seem to be, they do seem to be you know, pretty adaptable as a, as a species, if whatever, whatever they are. Whatever they are. Yeah. So if it took them a couple of hundred years to learn how to flush a toilet, then maybe my wife should cut me some slack because I'm only 35. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I try to remember. We, we all have rel- relative evolution in, the, in, the, in these skills. <laughs> so as they are finding these new ways to uh, utilize this technology to manifest – how do you draw the line then between whether or not it's actual poltergeist phenomena or just faulty mechanisms or, or faulty electricity coming into the house? I mean, it must be becoming as easy as it is for them to manipulate this technology. It must also be easier to debunk the idea that they are poltergeists. Yes, uh, that, I think the two things work in parallel. Um, the case, there have been a number of, of what you might call large-scale surveys I looked at 134 cases. Um, other 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 uh, investigators in both America and Britain have sort of lo- looked at uh, large quantities over time, and you find that somewhere between five and 15 percent of cases seem to have a degree of fraud or hoax about them. That seems to be pretty consistent across the data. So you always have to suspect that. Um, there's deliberate um, manipulation by uh, sneak uh, by sneaky humans um, uh, at, 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 at present. That, you know, I think, as I said, somewhere between five and fifteen percent of cases seem to uh, uh, allow for that. And there's also, of course, the problem of perception, of misperception, I should say, which is to say that some people can interpret um, a faulty wiring as as, as a poltergeist, and um, the, the more technology we have in our homes and our workplaces, the more it is possible that things will go wrong. 
And if you happen to be of the frame of mind that looks towards what I call the supernatural default, which is to say instead of looking for a mundane explanation, you look for the paranormal one first, then perhaps you might uh, misattribute um, something that goes wrong with your 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 home technology as as some kind of uh, sort of poltergeist activity. But on the other hand, uh, yeah, I still think it, I think it's pretty difficult to misinterpret heavy rocks flying through the air and then sort of mm-hmm. stopping in midair in the complete contravention of the laws of physics. Um, I think it's I think it's difficult to to, to misinterpret sort of. Um, uh, household utensils being turned into sort of uh, baroque sculptures, and then sort of uh, uh, sort of attacking people at will. So you know, I, th- I think so there's, there is always the room that you might be looking at some either misperception or hoax. But I suspect in a, in, in a large number of cases, you're not. Well, and also when you're looking into the way that they can manipulate the technology, I mean, we've got more, I guess you could say more energy coming into our houses these days than we did back then because, you know, instead of just having the regular uh, electrical appliances that we might have had 50 years ago, now we've got the cell phones and we've got computers. We've got all these different ways uh, for them to not only manifest but also to draw the energy that they need to do so. If if that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I... I've written two books on poltergeists, and I have absolutely no idea what they are or how they operate or or what the mechanism is that provides them with the sometimes extraordinary amounts of energy that would be required in the normal physical universe to achieve the the effects that that, 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 that they do. Are they drawing their energy from uh, the, the electricity supply and such like? Well, possibly, but on the other hand... They didn't need it in the 17th century, so you know, I, I, I just I, I don't know. I I, I, I remain, remain absolutely ignorant of what it is that uh, drives poltergeists. But it's still one of the most debated uh, aspects of poltergeist activity and phenomena is where it is coming from. I mean, there's there's debates about whether or not poltergeists are caused by. Uh, dead people or whether or not they're a, a phenomena unto themselves, some sort of entity unto themselves, or or if it's not some sort of human influence uh, o- over what's happening as well. That's right. Um, I wrote another book called What is a Poltergeist? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and I, I looked at nine different sort of uh, theories, maybe too strong, were nine different notions that were put together, put forward by, by people over the centuries about what is a poltergeist. Um, as you say, probably one of the most common ideas is that there's some kind of discarnate entity. And for that, I suppose you could enumerate demons, uh, ghosts. <clears throat> also, uh, and if you go back sort of 17th, 18th century, you find that fairies are uh, regarded as, as poltergeist uh, um, agents. <clears throat> fairies, and I don't, I don't mean Tinkerbell here. I, I mean right. uh, sort of right. the fairies of history who are not cute little winged, um, uh, charming creatures, but absolutely uh, deadly, malign um, um, creatures. Right. When they, um, when they start dying, nobody claps. Yeah, that's, yeah I quite agree. Um, and then quite a lot of cases used to be attributed to witchcraft. That, that's, that sort of trope has kind of declined a little recently, but you still find examples in the 20th century of um, up into the 1970s. Uh, in rural areas of people ascribing the poltergeist activity to to the form of a human witch, not not necessarily of a demon, but of a human witch. 
Um, there's the idea that the, it is the power of the human mind, um, probably un- unconsciously directed. That is the um, the psychokinesis idea that we that our inner distress is somehow exteriorized. Um, in, in the poltergeist, so the idea that poltergeists are thought forms, that is to say that um, through, by, through accident or, or deliberation, the human mind can somehow create a, 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 a being or an entity, entity perhaps, with some, some form of... Uh, uh, I'm getting lots of noise here. Yeah, it looks like something just happened with the, uh, the settings here. Let me just make an adjustment. Okay. How's that any better? That is much better. Thank you. I shall, I, I, I shall continue as if I was never interrupted. Um, the, 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 uh, these things are sort of tulpas that, uh, that the human mind can somehow create and have a semi-independent existence. Uh, there's the idea that um, poltergeists are entirely natural, that there's something to do with the forces of nature, uh, electromagnetism, geomagnetism, um, uh, underground water sources, uh, the uh, earthquakes, earth tremors. All these ideas have been explored as well. My absolute favorite idea, the one I came across in a, in a book written in the middle of the 19th century by two uh, very Victorian British chaps who'd spent some time living in eastern Bulgaria, which at the time was under the control of the Turks. And they spent a lot of time uh, you know, living with the people and learning what, what they believed in. In their local village, there was a widespread belief in vampires. But these weren't these weren't Count Dracula vampires. These were vampires who, for the first nine days of their existence, existed as um, invisible spirits that could only be seen as sparks in the night, and which behaved exactly like poltergeists. It's quite extraordinary to find a sort of vampire belief co- uh, coinciding with poltergeists in Eastern Europe in the middle of the nineteenth century. And I found another another examples of that, all of which shows that people have been afflicted by <clears throat> poltergeists over the centuries and the way they, they try to interpret them within their own sort of cultural context. For, 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 early, for early Christians onwards, poltergeists have been demons. In the 17th, 18th century, when <clears throat> witchcraft was, a, a, it was a, not just illegal in, in Britain um, <clears throat> and... Um, colonial America, um, but also um, a capital crime. Many people ascribe poltergeists to witches, um, and in in our modern times, we think they are earth energies or the powers of the mind. And, and you know, the powers of mind idea has only been around since the nineteen thirties. It's really sort of post Freudian idea. So maybe within the next decade, someone will come up with a completely different theory about what powers poltergeists. Now. Some of the early phenomena associated with poltergeists uh, w- was the throwing of stones and mm-hmm. and things of that nature. And and when you're researching these stories, uh, I'm sure that there's probably some degree of uh, fantastical to the early stories. Uh, but when you put them in the context of modern poltergeists, they must start to make a lot of sense. I mean, these are probably stories that were dismissed by a lot of their contemporaries. But when you look back now at 500 years of uh, history of similar type activity, uh, you can't really turn a blind eye to it. You have to say, all right, there was something going on then. That's right. It, it's sometimes difficult to extract from the historical records exactly what was going on at the time because sometimes the, the records are incredibly incomplete mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. At, at other times they are very partial. That is to say they're written by someone with a particular religious point of view. 
But some of the, the best attested cases were um, uh, written down in journals uh, as they were happening. And so you've, we find, sort of, for example, there's one case from 17th century Scotland, uh, which goes into pages and pages uh, of what was happening over several months on a day-by-day basis, written by one of the witnesses. And at the end of it, it lists all the people who said that they, that they did experience and witness these things. And it, and it includes yeah, six ministers of the church, the local landowner, five gentlemen farmers. And you know, one suspects that they wouldn't have put their name to a document like that if they thought it was false. So, you know, I think even though we have to be a bit sceptical about some of the historical documentation, um, and particularly when, when um, something has been written down long, long after the events that took place, um, I, I think in some cases we are, we are probably looking at, at a, an authentic record, even if it is slightly blurred at the edges, still an authentic record of something that really did happen. Uh, what do you look at it and when people are questioning whether or not rocks could be thrown, for example, uh, in the 1600s, but then you find out that these things are strong enough to, to move entire rooms full of furniture in the blink of an eye in the 21st century. So it, it, it shows that perhaps... Perhaps they were miscast uh, at the time and, and, and not really appreciated for the strong entities that they truly are. Well, I think some people generally did uh, appreciate the strength that, that the, the poltergeists um, uh, exhibited. They didn't know the word poltergeist. They didn't have a conception of the word poltergeist. They had to conceive it as uh, a demon or a ghost or something, or, or something like that. But when you have um, you know, walls being cast down, um, as large wooden staves flying through the air and beating people mercilessly, when you have big boughs of wood flowing through the air. When, um, at, at one point, I think, um, a, a blacksmith's anvil was thrown through the air. I mean, you know, I couldn't lift an anvil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it, and, and people did, really did, did appreciate just how powerful um, the, these, these entities were, even if they conceived them differently, perhaps, from the way that we do now. Well, you, oh, get a little feedback there. You still with us, Jeff? I am indeed, yes. Okay. So looking at the uh, idea then that poltergeists are probably separate from ghosts, uh, at, le- at least it, it seems to be that way in a lot of these cases, then how come par- uh, poltergeist phenomena happen so often alongside uh, other uh, paranormal phenomena? You ask me that question as if, I, as if you think that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Honestly, um, I said I've, re- I've done all this research, I've, done, I've written all these books, and I still haven't got a clue what it is that distinguishes uh, one case from, from being a sort of ghostly haunting, another one from the, that turns out to be poltergeist phenomena. Um, other than we tend to assume that there's sort of the general sort of widespread assumption is the ghosts are the spirits of the dead, although I think that's probably a, dis- a, a disputable uh, argument, or perhaps for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there's a, yeah, the generally, I would say, certainly within uh, the research establishment, as the, the, this thing from the popular mind, we don't think of as, we don't think of uh, poltergeists as spirits of the dead much these days, although obviously some people do. But, you know, 
why ask me? I, 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 I ask a poltergeist. Yeah, maybe, maybe they'll be forthcoming. Or I do happen. I do. I should point out that where in a few cases poltergeists do develop a voice. Uh, firstly, they seem to develop an ego, um, and that ego seems to lie all the time. So maybe you wouldn't get the most accurate information from from a pulse. But you know, you never know. It might be worth trying. Oh, we would definitely be up for the challenge. Uh, and there has been, at least uh, in the 20th century and beyond, there's been a lot of uh, attempts to tie in poltergeist phenomena with uh, things such as RSPK, and and it seems like we want to try to find a. Uh, quantifiable reason why this takes place, and we we want to give it a human cause. And in some cases, though, that does prove to be true. I mean, I've I've read uh, plenty of cases. In uh, the, the Tina case, for example, is very famous, uh, where they they determined that it was actually you know her that was causing a lot of this activity. And it, it is it more of a modern phenomena to be able to find a human agent as the cause of the parano- uh, poltergeist phenomena. Yes and no. The, the, the Tina case that you mentioned, as you say, is, is, is a very famous example of something where the, the theory fits the facts. The theory, RSPK, recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, um, put forward as a, as, an, as a possible explanation for, for the phenomena, and it fits with this disturbed individual at the heart of it. Uh, the the uh, classic of this is from 1960, once again, a case in Scotland, in Sochi in Scotland, where we have a very, very unhappy 11-year-old girl who's been removed from her family home. Um, she's staying with relatives she's never met. She's in a different country. She's having to, to share a bed with her cousin. Uh, and worst of all, she's left a pet dog behind, who she really misses. And the... Uh, poltergeist phenomena erupts in uh, home and in her school. It's witnessed by doctors. It's witnessed by her teachers. Witnessed by also a num- large number of adults. They uh, and then it declines once her dog turns up and she gets a friend in school and she becomes happier. Uh, the the uh, witnesses were interviewed very quickly after the events and some of the poltergeist knock-ins were recorded on tape. So, you know, we, and we, uh, they're still amenable to analysis. Now, that's a classic example of RSPK. That, that fits, the theory fits the phenomena. That we don't, you don't need to call upon any kind of discarnate entity to explain that. Um, and then again, once again, you find a case in the 17th century in Scotland where um, this was in a rural farmhouse. Uh, the the father in the family suspected that one of his children might have been the sort of focus of what was going on. So he sent each one of his children away to stay with friends or relatives and noticed if anything happened. And when when I think the, I think the the, the, the the eldest son I think was eighteen or nineteen when he left, the phenomena ceased. And when he came back. It, it, it returned. So they were, they were sort of thinking along the same lines sometimes as well. But that being said, trying to find a one-size-fits-all uh, theory to accommodate all poltergeist activity seems to me uh, to be a, a dead end. I don't think the ecology of poltergeists is that straightforward. Some of it does seem to fit exactly with RSPK, with the human mind exteriorizing itself. But in other examples, we can't find any focus at all. Um, and you know, I, I think some of it is some of it is that, and some of it is not. Uh, it, it, poltergeists are, I think, poltergeists are their entire ecosystem. 
and we're, we're, we're looking at different parts of it um, and, and we're sort of just trying to, 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 to glimpse our way through the murk. It seems to me like it's almost too clean and too, uh, too reassuring of a, of a reason. Yes, that's right. And it's also that, that sometimes um, what, what happened, uh, one of the, good, the great poltergeist uh, researchers, uh, William Rowell, um, the late William Rowell, uh, who is, if you haven't read his books, go out and read them. They're fantastic. Um, he sort of analyzed a lot of cases, and in the, and in the 70s, he came up with this idea that the, the typical poltergeist focus was um, a, a, a female below the age of 23 uh, with some kind of emotional or physical distress um, and... Uh, that that analysis was useful, but that's now for some, in some for some people it's been regarded as default. So when some poltergeist investigators turn up, they immediately look for the unhappy female, young female. Where that that's the wrong way. That's the wrong way to you ask the cart before the horse. What you need to do is look at the phenomenon and see what's happening, as they can say, "Well, let's look for the let's look for the unhappy little girl um, or the unhappy teenager." Because although that's the case in some cases, in, in most in the majority of poltergeist cases, there isn't uh, an unhappy young female at the heart of it. So although it's useful as, as a way of perhaps conceptualizing some of the cases, it's not, it's not universal. Like you said, it's, we want simplistic ideas. We want to be able to explain the way a poltergeist, because they're, they're so challenging to the way we think about the world. They, they, they shift the paradigm of how we think the world is organized, how the universe runs, that we want some kind of straightforward explanation. Oh, it's an, it's an unhappy female teenager. That, that's, a, that's not an explanation. Uh, that's that's maybe may an observation. That's about as far as, far as that can go. Well, and I know that I've investigated a few cases uh, over the years, or, or at least uh, been on the periphery of a few cases where it seems like that could be the case. But like you said, it's probably a matter of uh, of the case fitting the theory uh, more than the theory being correct. Yes, I, yes, that's that's right. Um, if you if you go into a paranormal investigation and you've got these preset ideas of what you're going to find, then lo and behold, you will find them. But but what you may not find is the truth. If, if indeed the truth is is actually amenable to investigation in a poltergeist like uh, poltergeist uh, research, you know, um, because they're, they're sn- sneaky creatures, Pulse. They are, but it also seems too like uh, the phenomena can happen so quickly and so suddenly and with such strength uh, that when people do bring it to the forefront and do call attention to it, uh, sometimes by the time they start getting the attention to it, uh, it it's kind of gone away already. And, and that's probably where a lot of these fakeries come from because something legitimate may have started off, but then there comes that pressure to, to continue the performance even after uh, the poltergeists have gone away. You're, you've put your finger on it exactly there. The, the notion of performance, I think, is, is something uh, very, very important. Uh, I think you can regard it like a, a very florid poltergeist case can be a kind of a sort of theatrical terrorism. Um, and it, it, it's, it can be alarming for those at the start of it. Uh, but as you say, uh, it, it takes a while before, in inverted commas, the important people turn up, before the, the, the doctors and the journalists and the psychical investigators and the scientists, before they turn up. And maybe by, they do, by the time they do turn up, it's gone away. Now, for the person at the centre of it, maybe this is 
they now they're now at the source of a source of attention. Maybe welcome, maybe unwelcome, but um, they may feel pr- pressured to continue the performance to actually fake the the phenomena, um, and that's often done in a very gauche or clumsy manner, and it is often easily exposed. At which point, people say point the finger and say, "Aha! The whole thing is fraudulent." But I, it's something uh, that I've really noticed that you you have high-level, complex phenomena at the start, which are inexplicable. And by the time the researchers turn up, it's, de- it's descended into, into farce, into, 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 into outright fakery, because the poll has simply stopped. That's, that's what they do. They, for, for, for no reason that we can discern, they just stop. And then, you know, people at the centre of it may feel pressured, as you say, to, 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 to perform um, for the circus that's arrived in town. Uh, maybe not only just for the attention aspect of it, but also because they don't want people to think that they were crazy and that you know they want them to realize that this phenomenon did take place. And just for their own reputation and for their own sanity, they, they want people to believe. Yes, I, th- I, think that, I think that's part of it. Human beings have very complex motives. Um, and if your life has been disrupted in this way, um, perhaps you might fear going through life uh, uh, sort of... With some kind of, with, a, with, a, with an unfortunate reputation as being a bit nutty, mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe uh, it, that's that's one of the sort of motives to to sort of continue uh, what we what what I think we, we we rightly call the performance. So when you are researching these cases and putting them together, and, and not just for the, for the new book Poltergeist over Scotland, but when you're putting together uh, the original book, what is a poltergeist? You're, you're probably hearing a lot of stories that you have to determine uh, that at some point might have gone into the farcical and and try to find you know, the true heart, of, what we would call the heart of the haunting, kind of the the heart of the poltergeist matter. Yes, that's right, and I think that the, the heart is the original phenomena. That that that's what that's what that's what you, what you need to look at first. The things that happen first before people turn up, bef- and people turn up often have their own agendas. Um, the, if you look at the number of cases around about the high point of spiritualism, so let's let's look at sort of the the, the later eighteen eighteen sixties eighteen seventies, and then again in the nineteen twenties after the First World War. These are the sort of the high points of spiritualism. And spiritualists have a particular uh, worldview, which is you know that we survive in, in, into the afterlife, and the dead are, are eager to communicate with the living. Um, and spiritualists tended to interpret poltergeist cases as being communications from the dead. So if um, a, the spiritualists were first on the scene, they would shape the phenomena along those lines. And so, so everything that followed thereafter would be spiritualist-shaped. Um, whereas if you have someone who's first on the scene who's deeply sceptical and is convinced that the whole thing is fraudulent, this would typically be someone like a, um, a medical doctor, perhaps a psychologist, although, you know, the historical terms, no, I think med- medical doctors, or, or perhaps um, a, an officer of the law, they would often bully the uh, the the young person at the, at, the, at the heart of the case into admitting that they, 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 they'd faked it. Um, and so it's the, the, the later stuff is usually less valuable, although it's much more publicized, than the much earlier phenomena. That's what you need to look at when, when you're trying to, to, to discern whether there's any verite to the, um, to the, to the, the phenomena being, being reported. 
All right, we have about a minute before we have to take a news break. Uh, but coming up in the next hour, Jeff, I want to talk with you more about these cases, particular to Scotland, that you researched for the new book, Poltergeist Over Scotland. Uh, but just let everybody know where they can get your books. Yep, um, the the books are available via that nice Mr. Amazon, and they are all uh, online places. The What is a Poltergeist is an e-book only, and it's available on Kindle and Kobo and a- any sort of uh, online retailer for e-books. And um, What is a Poltergeist can also be obtained via my website, which is jeffholder.com, um, or you can get it via any um, online retailer, um, yeah, um, Amazon.com or, or any anywhere else in the world as well. Excellent. Your website is linked up on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well, so people can go there if they want to find out more about Jeff and about his works. Uh, As I said, we are coming up on a news break. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk more about Poltergeist with Jeff Holder, and we'll talk about the new book, Poltergeist Over Scotland, and some of these cases that he's researched over the years. Uh, We'll also have more discussion. We'll take your calls, 508-996-0500. 18779961420 you can email us spooky crew at spookysouthcoast.com and you can also grab us on twitter at spooky sc so uh, plenty of ways to get into, involved in the discussion we don't have spooky tv running tonight the cameras are not up and running but you can log on to spookysouthcoast.com and go to the spooky tv page and you'll see the chat room is up and running there everybody is in there chatting uh, having a good discussion and a good time talking about poltergeist and we can also take questions from there as well because matt costa without all the uh, cameras to worry about can kind of just Read off any questions that pop up there from me. You're like the Stephanie Burke of tonight's show. <laughs> yeah. I am. You are. Uh, you're nowhere near as pretty. Yeah. But you are. Uh, you are the laptop maven tonight. So. I am. Uh, keep an eye on that. So we will take all your calls as well. And uh, I- anything to do with Poltergeist, give us a call. 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. Quick reminder for everybody, too, that uh, if you want to get involved in that next Legend Trips event, just go to legendtrips.com and sign up for the mailing list because it will be announced to the public coming up uh, in the next couple of days. And we're already about a quarter of the way sold out. So you don't want to miss your opportunity uh, to join us on the USS Salem on August 31st. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Matt Costa. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and Andrew Lake is sitting in with us as well from Greenville Paranormal Research and from 30-odd minutes as well. Andy, how's things been going? I'm doing pretty good. I talked to you for about two minutes last week, uh, non-event related at uh, Fort Tabor, but... Uh, it's going pretty good. Now, listen to this topic tonight. It's pretty interesting because, uh, you know, as you know, I've been looking into a case now for four years in Situate, Rhode Island. And, uh, uh, you know, just thinking about, you know, he's talking about the gamut of poltergeist activity, you know, throughout, you know, technology and time. And uh, uh, the poltergeist activity at this house, it can go from anywhere from bending spoons to messing with um, the uh, the Internet and uh, television and uh, phone hookup in the house so bad that they had to call in the local service mm-hmm. and three technicians could not find anything wrong with their computers phones and their diagnostic equipment couldn't understand what was going on and the woman kept her mouth shut about the house being haunted <laughs> and then after about an hour and a half she said would you use uh the word uh, paranormal to describe the problems that we're having in this house with the, our our phone and internet hookup and the guy says yeah why what do you mean by that she goes because the house is haunted, we just wanted professionals to come in and confirm that this stuff is as wacky as we think it is. So they go from bending spoons to uh, messing with uh, TV remotes and uh, changing the channels on the TV and everything else. It's uh, 
the whole gamut. So our guest tonight is Jeff Holder. He's the author of the new book, Poltergeist Over Scotland. And, and Jeff, what Andrew was just describing, I don't know how much of it you heard, but I'm sure that that's what a lot of you know, 2013 poltergeist reports sound like. Indeed so. That, that's, uh, I would say, quite a high-level poltergeist. Um, most poltergeist stories are far less uh, dramatic than that. Um, but the ones that draw attention, they do seem to be able to manipulate technology at will. Yeah, yeah. Is there, uh, though, with with the more modern phenomena, with the more modern technology, uh, is there a chance that they could do damage to these things? Because, you know, we've seen in movies, for example, you know, we've seen them be able to blow out the the electrical systems in entire houses. Uh, is there a, a power surge associated with their presence that could damage our, our more modern, delicate technologies? Um, I'd be more concerned about damage to my more modern, delicate skin than I would be to <laughs> my computer system. Um, there's, there's a case, for, a famous case from Rosenheim in Germany, um, uh, for memory serves, 1967, uh, where uh, the, the, the centerpiece was a, a, a legal office and the focus was the, uh, the, the teenage clerk and, uh, and the... the, the um, the legal office was having problems with his telephone and electrical system. The telephone bill was rocketing. It was, it was like they were calling the moon or something. <laughs> and the, um, the, the, the speaking clock was being dialed faster than the system itself could actually cope with, um, far faster than human fingers, human fingers could. And they called in some technicians, and the technicians did actually record power surges taking place around the, the, the building that they could not uh, uh, explain. And whilst these surges were happening, in, they noticed things like you know the, the the lights would rock, the lights would come on and on and off around the young woman at the, at the centre of it. She was um, very unhappy with the situation with her fiance. That was uh, that was that was the, the core of it. So we do have a few cases where um, the the poltergeist uh, activity has sort of shown up on meters uh, in an inexplicable way. And the, what, what what you were describing there sounds to be absolutely classic of its case. That being said, some modern pults don't seem to be concerned with technology at all. They're just like throwing things around and, you know, making nuisances of themselves in a, in a, in a, in a classic manner. They're, they're, just, they're just capricious pults. You, can never, you can't say a pult will do this because a pult will do exactly the opposite. Right. It's almost like they do it uh, to, to mock you and they do it to give you what you're not expecting. Yeah. In, in, in some cases, that, that's, that, the, the pulp does seem to be reactive. It, 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 it seems to be like a sort of, I don't know, I, I think there's something of a, I don't know, a kind of, not, not childlike, that's not, that's not the word, but something, an, an underdeveloped intelligence, I think, is, is perhaps at play, which takes gleeful pleasure in just being wrong, just being naughty. So no, no, what, what, no matter what people suspect is going to happen, it doesn't, it doesn't do it. Or it'll do it, and then it'll do something completely different the, the next time. You, you can't expect consistency from pulse. You can't expect logic you can't you can't seem to find any kind of uh, meaningful communication. Maybe pulse create chaos just because they can. Who knows? Right? Maybe maybe that's what they feed off of. Maybe they. It's not so much the chaos that they're causing, but maybe it's our reaction to it. Indeed, um, one of the uh, sort of ideas put forward by. Um, 
particularly Colin Wilson, who's sort of a great writers on on this subject. He has this idea that um, sometimes when we're very frustrated or angry or unhappy, we sort of create the sort of balls of energy around us, sort of um, kind of some kind of psychic energy, for want of a better term. Uh, and that doesn't do anything until a pulse comes out. Pulse is some sort of low-level discarnate entity, a sort of, sort of um, uh, delinquent of the spiritual world. And they find this energy and they feed off this energy. And by creating more chaos, it creates more unhappiness and more stress and more of that sort of human energy pours into the environment, into the, I don't know, psychical environment or whatever it is, and, and the pulse become more active. And maybe after a while, they just get bored. You know, that, that, and that's why they stop. I, you know, once again, we have absolutely no idea what it is that they are and why they do it. So, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, this is all idle speculation in a way, but it, it certainly is the case that pulse are just not consistent in any way at all. Uh, but really, what else do we have but conjecture? Because they are some of the most head-scratching phenomena that takes place in terms of the paranormal. You know, we can almost depend on some sort of repeatability or, or, or at least a, an intelligent influence over straight-up ghostly phenomena. And with UFO phenomena, you know, we can often find a lot of physical uh, evidence that's left behind. But with, with poltergeist, it's just it's, – it's like the microburst storm that we had here earlier today. It's just – it comes, it's powerful, it happens, it goes away, and it leaves very little trace except for the destruction. Yeah, I, you've, I think you've summed it up perfectly. If you are unfortunate to be at the end of a poltergeist uh, uh, infestation, I, I do think it is unfortunate. I think it is truly, I think it's like being experiencing a um, crime. I think it's been, been like the victim of a serious crime. Um, then, yeah, it, yeah, as you say, it comes, it goes, and it leaves a trail of destruction in its wake. And, and people then scratch their heads and try to work out what the heck it was. And as yet, despite hundreds and hundreds of years of people writing and thinking and trying to analyze poltergeists, we still don't have, we still haven't got a clue what they are. Well, so the new book is called Poltergeist Over Scotland, and you have chronicled stories uh, dating all the way back to the 1600s. What, what's the earliest story that you came across? The earliest story it dates from approximately 1635, um, and this was a time when Scotland was in, um, in one of its periodic uh, uh, let's let's kill everybody who doesn't believe exactly the same way that we believe um, sort of periods. It was a sort of period of civil, of religious and political civil war, um, and it it occurred in Edinburgh, and it occurred in the house of a Protestant clergyman. Um, and the uh, pulse seemed to take a, a, exception to their prayers. It seemed to be very active during their prayers. It seemed to be very active during during the Sabbath. Um, it polluted food. It, it um, opened all the locked chests and uh, drawers in the house and brought all the clothes out and strewed them around around the house. Um, it banged. It crashed. It didn't develop. An, it didn't develop a voice, um, but it just seem to uh, just do the sort of classic knocking, banging, let's, and let's create sort of chaos kind of thing. Um, I've, got this, I've got a quote from here. Um, uh, Once they found their best linen taken out, the table covered with it, the napkins as if they had been used, yay, and liquor in their cups as if company had been there at meat. The rumbling was extraordinary, the good man commonly called his family to, to prayer when it was most troublesome, and immediately it was converted into a gentle knocking, like the modest knock of a finger, 
But then there was excessive knocking, as if a beam had been heaved by the strength of many against the floor. And, and in one case, a, a, a serving woman um, who was disturbed by it at night I got so fed up with it, she threw um, half a cannonball at it, um, and, it and the cannonball disappeared. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I estimated that at about um, five pounds of, of, of metal and stone just disappearing, in, in, uh, in, uh, which is just... Uh, just absolutely amazing. And what's, yeah, I, I think what's, what's good about this case is that we have a lot of witnesses. Um, at least six witnesses are, are mentioned as, as, as uh, sort of uh, experiencing this. So it, it seems like uh, it has that typical kind of messing with people reputation even back then. Oh, yes. So Scotland comes very late to the poltergeist world. We find cases from uh, continental Europe, for example, from as early as the second century AD, wow. uh, when uh, they, they, uh, poltergeists were then interpreted as demons and they tended to assault uh, holy men, you know, holy Christian men. Um, um, so those are sort of some of the earliest that we have. So the, the problem with Scotland is that the, the written records before the, the, the 1600s are quite sparse. And, and for a poltergeist case in history, you needed someone to write it down. And in a country where there was very low literacy, uh, there would have obviously probably been poltergeist cases, but no one was writing them down. This is the first, and this this case I only found out because the only uh, one particular set of letters from one individual to another survived. That's the only reason we know about this case. And so, although there are many others, this is this is the absolute earliest that I, that I could find. But this is a you know. A, this this isn't a, a poltergeist in development. This is a this is this is the classic poltergeist case there already in 1635. And you mentioned kind of the the socioeconomic status of Scotland at the time, and and it seems like as Scotland Scotland's had a pretty uh, tumultuous history over the years, and it seems like as it went through these different periods of change, did did the poltergeist activity ramp up, and and were there more instances of cases taking place? No, I, I can't find any. Um, uh, comparison between uh, the, the rate of poltergeist activity and uh, the uh, so, and social effects. That, that those two things seem to be independent. Hmm. Um, that is that being said, of course, in in, in history, once again, you need someone to write it down. Uh, and the number of cases increases as you move, especially into the nineteenth century, be, simply because um, you have a larger literacy. You know, much wider literacy, uh, and secondly, in the middle of the 19th century, you find um, organisations such as the Ghost Club and the Folklore Society and the, the Society for Psychological Research, they're being founded and people are now taking an interest in the supernatural, whereas before it would be the quirk of the only person in the village who could, who could read and write, who, who, would be, who would be willing to record these for us. So, so there's no... There's no uh, Ratio between uh, social disturbance and poltergeist activity that that, that, that I can find. Um, it's simply that the more lit- literate people you have in, in the country, uh, the more people are interested in this. That's the, that's when you get more cases. So, for example, in the um, the seventeenth century, I think there were nine cases recorded, and you know, in the first half of uh, and that, that's we've had more cases in the last. 13 years of the 21st century than we had in the whole of the, the whole of the 17th century. So that's, that's simply because there are more people reporting these things. So I, I think poltergeists seem to be independent of, of social chaos. They just, although they do respond to social chaos, he said, contradicting himself, um, that, yeah, um, 
particularly in the 17th century, poltergeists are interested in the religious and political rumblings of the time. They seem to be acting or responding uh, or mm, playing their part. You know, so if there's a, if there's a, a religious dispute, they will uh, they will be uh, they'll, they'll, they'll they'll take the take a role within within that. If there's a, a military dispute, they'll take they'll take a side in that. But other than that, no, I don't see any I don't see any any correspondence. Well, it, it is a. a- Fascinating that you mentioned that they do want to kind of play their part because it, it makes me think that there really is a, an intelligence behind whatever these creatures are and that they, they know exactly what they're doing. Well, that's, that's, that's just what I'm, that's what I'm sensing from them. I, 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 I sense a, a crude intelligence at play in some of the cases. And it... As I said earlier, early, uh, early Scottish poltergeists used to communicate in Latin. They don't do that anymore because nobody knows Latin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're, they're, uh, you know, poltergeists seem to evolve with humans. You know, the, the, preoccupa- the, pre- the preoccupations of the humans uh, become the preoccupations of the, of the pults. They, they seem I mean, to know the buttons to push. Yes, indeed. So, in some, in some cases, physically the buttons to push, um, but you know, no one, no, no poltergeist in modern times engages in endless d- 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 discussion about uh, uh, about religious issues and quoting scripture. They don't do that anymore. Whereas three hundred years ago, that's what they used to do because our our preoccupations have changed. So, you know, I think I think they kind of evolve in parallel to us. I think. Well, there was a cake. Mike? No, you're wrong. All right. There was a case in um, the United States here in the 19th century. I believe it was called the Bell Witch. I was just reading about it today, believe it, it or not. Yeah. So, uh, and it was quite regularly quoting scripture and song and various other things, doing apportations and moving things about. And that's a well-documented case. Even Andrew Jackson was right. family uh, friends of the family, he stayed in the house, and he was terrified by what he witnessed in the house. But again, yeah, very religious family. A lot of prayer when the, when these things happened seemed to stir and, things up. And do you find you know, poltergeists uh, in, the, in, in the contemporary world tend not to be uh, as religiously obsessed as poltergeists from the past because I, our, our society has changed? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah, right now we're in the religion of the iPad, yeah. so <laughs> that's what they're going to mess with. Yes. Well, we are talking with our guest, Jeff Holder. If you have any questions for Jeff about the world of poltergeists, 508-996-0500, I know, Matt Costa, you're looking at me like I have two heads, but no, we can actually patch calls through to Skype now. And so uh, if anybody wants to call in and ask a question, feel free. And you mentioned that the reports get more numerous as the years go by and as people become uh, more literate. And is there any change in the phenomena that they're reporting as the years go by? Is there any, uh, say, more uh, an increase in, in more overt actions by these poltergeists? Is it almost like they know that the story is being written about them, so they're, they're, they're trying to provide a little bit more? Uh, I, don't, I don't get a sense of that. Um, the... I mean, the most recent case I come across in Scotland is from 2012, and and it sounds. I mean, take away the the, the fact that it was in a, a modern uh, council. I, I know. I know. Actually, there is one. 
there is one thing, which is that these days most poltergeists take place in what's called council housing here. Council housing is public housing. You know, it's built by the, the local authority. Um, and um, large numbers of people in Scotland still live in council houses. So in, from the Second World War onwards, poltergeists move out of the, the farms and into the council houses uh, because that's where the population moves. But other than that, I mean, you know, we, we've, uh, the, this sort of 2012 case, we've got um, shoes being thrown through the air, mobile phones being thrown, pots and pans scattered across the floor, doors are slamming, cupboard doors are banging incessantly, bedclothes pulled off the bed, um, voices, flickering lights, damage to photographs of family members, um, um, and uh, then messages left in flour, you know, scattered on the floor, and then a really weird thing where the four-year-old child in the house um, uh, acquires um, what may be an imaginary friend, but also is described as a sort of bald man with an injured eye who keeps making very malignant suggestions. Um, and all of this, to be honest, could be in the 17th century. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think they're, I don't think that the pulse is sort of playing up, playing up to its, its publicity potential. It's mm. just doing what pulse do, which is let's, let's just mess with the world and with human minds because that's what we do. Well, we've mentioned the Tina Resch case and we've mentioned the Bell Witch case, which are both very famous American examples of poltergeist activity. What is probably the most famous Scottish case? Uh, well, I, m- I mentioned earlier the Sochi case from 1960, which was investigated very thoroughly at the time and seemed to be a very, very uh, significant um, example of the fact that uh, RSPK was definitely real. The, 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 probably the most famous case in, uh, in Scotland in more recent times is something I'd just like to spend a, a little time on uh, because it is so absolutely extraordinary. It took place in Glasgow. 1974 and 1975, and the context was is that it was um, a council housing again, and it was a, a two-story house. So one family was living on one floor, and one family, family was living one one below. And the two families were at war with each other, been at war with each other for years. Um, and then phenomena started happening, banging, typically, typically banging started happening on the on the floors. And people upstairs started complaining to people downstairs, stop your banging. And people upstairs saying, you know, no, you stop your banging as well. And the police got called, and people got called again, and people got arrested. And whilst they were in the, in the police station being questioned, uh, the banging continued. Um, and then it, uh, sort of all hell broke loose. Um, you know, oh, gosh, water being flooded in the house, things flying through the air, things being set on fire, smoke. The, uh, the the 12-year-old and 14-year-old boy in the family started to become manipulated by some kind of possessive entity. Uh, messages are, are sent from um, dead people telling the people upstairs to murder the, pe- the, the, the man downstairs. Wow. Um, uh, uh, they have they have local councillors. They have Catholic priests. They have Protestant uh, ministers. They have the the post office. They have the electricity company. They have the police. They have everybody involved. And in the end, it gets so bad that the um, two 
investigators from the, the Scottish Society for Psychical Research, um, one of whom was a professor of astronomy and the other of whom was a professor of theology, See, uh, spent months in the house um, because it only seemed to be their presence that seemed to calm down the poltergeist. And it had, it had some sort of ridiculous things. Uh, um, the... Um, at one point, one of the investigators was so fed up with the constant noises, he just shouted out, this is ridiculous, just stop it. And the poltergeist stopped immediately. You know, so it, it, was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was responsive in, 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 some, in some ways. Um, and uh, it lasted for about, uh, about a year, I think, before it just vanished um, for no obvious reason. It attacks the brain and you it might not know what hit very, you. It's a stroke um, and it can cripple or cure you. Uh, not surprisingly because you know the family involved didn't really want the, the light of publicity being shown on, on, on what was a, a misery for them. You know, they all lost weight, they, they weren't sleeping, uh, the kids were taken away from school, all sorts of terrible things happened to them. Um, but what strikes me about it, this, this, this Glasgow case, uh, I, it's, it's almost as if it's it was, an, it was an apprenticeship. You may have heard of the Enfield poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you, yeah, the Enfield poltergeist is probably the most famous British poltergeist of recent times. It took place in 1977 in London. And the reason it's famous is because it was recorded at the time. So we have journalists and we have television people turning up and we have recordings and we have multiple witnesses and it was publicised at the time. But if you look at the phenomena from the, the Enfield poltergeist from 1977 and compare it to the Glasgow poltergeist from 74 to 75, it's as if the Glasgow one, Glasgow case was the apprenticeship and then it moved to London to continue, to continue its sort of um, more mature activities. They, they, they seem to be in greatly in parallel, but the, the Glasgow case is far less well-known uh, simply because they didn't want publicity at the time. Um, and sadly now, all the, all the, with, the, with the exception of the family, who are, are still an, um, anonymous, uh, the, all the witnesses, all the researchers are now dead. So we, we and, and there weren't any recordings, any decent recording taken of, of these extraordinary events, and which, which is a great shame because um, yeah, now we now we're going we're gonna to lose what may be the one I think one of the most significant cases of the twentieth century because we simply don't have enough um, recordings. Whereas Enfield continues to sort of fascinate us simply because we we have recordings of people who saw it at the time and and and. Um, and so on. So the, uh, I think that one is. I think that one is truly, absolutely um, um, amazing. The more, the more you read about it, it just seems mind-boggling what was going on and, and terrifying for the individuals involved. Yeah, and of course, with the Enfield case, we have that picture of a girl jumping off of her bed. And uh, <laughs> I've always been very skeptical of the photographic proof from that case, but yeah, but we we do have uh, audio recordings right. of some things happening uh, in in the Enfield house, and many of the people involved were interviewed at the time. Whereas with the Glasgow case, we sadly don't have any any recordings at all. Um, and uh, you know, the, the Glasgow case was also you know, matter through matter. Things would fly through walls. You know, they would. They, they, they would. They would. They would. They would. This was. This was seen by people. Um, and you know, that's impossible. It's physically impossible. But that's what. That's what people were were um, saying. Um, the you know, the the boys developed incredible physical strength. One of them who was eleven years old, a very slight child. He he overcame his uncle, who was six foot two, sixteen stone, former Dutch resistance fighter. You know, um, and um, it was uh, the, the furniture got moved, 
um, fire, smoke, oh, and um, you know, dolls would spin around like they were cartoon characters. Um, uh, figures appeared um, made out of polystyrene wig heads, and it just seemed to sort of just go on and on and on. And then, and then it stopped. You know, as which which is what pulse do. They just stop. You know? And when you talked about uh, young boys having extraordinary feats of strength like that, is that something that comes from uh, within them through the poltergeist, or is that like you know uh, the poltergeist kind of just moves the adult back? I mean, is it something that the the boys reported feeling any differently when it when it took place? No, they they said that it wasn't them that was doing it. Okay, that they, that they were being made to do it. But you know, um, once again, you're asking me as if I know. I know. <laughs> About the motivations and, and mechanisms of poltergeists. Yeah, that's <laughs> that, that, that's, that is out, out with my my uh, my my, my uh, uh, abilities and knowledge. I'm afraid. Well, if anybody has any questions for our guest Jeff Holder, five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty. We do have a question from the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast dot com. Uh, Destin Nathan Truth wants to know. What is the difference between poltergeist and demons? And I think he means in terms of of the level of activity, perhaps. Well, that, once again, um, your, your correspondent is asking me asking me a question as if I know about this, mm-hmm. um, because this is all this is all putative. The word demon is an interpretive word. It's, it's a word that people place on the phenomena because it fits within their with their worldview. I mean, most cultures do have demons within within their belief system, at least at some point in their in their development. Um, uh, Christian demons are evil; they they do evil things. Um, poltergeists uh, sometimes do evil things, but sometimes. They're just annoying nuisances. I mean, the, the cases that we've been talking about today are the most florid cases, the most extreme cases. Most poltergeist cases um, are, are relatively mild. A few things get knocked over. There are a few noises that lasts for a day or two, and then that's it. You know, but obviously we, you know, they're, they're less dramatic, they're less interesting, so we don't talk about those things. Um, some people think poltergeists are demons. Um, if we look at the, 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 the indication that de- a demon is a discarnate non-human entity, um, and then there seems to be some plausibility that maybe maybe some pulps are discarnate non-human entities. Um, does that mean they're demons uh, in the sort of traditional religious sense? You know what? I have no idea. Um, but for some people, demons, the, the, the demonic appellation fits... And I'll give you a very good example. This is actually an example from France in the 19th century where a, um, a very respected, very uh, very highly intellectual local village priest was persecuted by a poltergeist for something like 25 years. It was like his personal poltergeist. And he regarded it as a demon. It was him, it was him against the demon. And it was his, like his, his personal demon. But he was a deeply Catholic man in a deeply Catholic tradition the way of interpreting the poltergeist, the only interpretation that he could have was a demon. He couldn't think of it as uh, as PK or or anything like that. It had to be a demon. Um, So for him and everyone else who's followed followed his ideas, the palt is a demon. The demon acts as a palt. It's almost like a circular argument. 
if you don't have sort of those religious views, the idea that cults of demons might seem ridic- might seem ridiculous. Um, you know, does the, the the Lord of Hell get his rocks off by knocking over coffee cups and you know um, shouting boo at people out of dark corners? Mm, possibly not. You know, once again, I have absolutely no idea. What's the difference between pots and demons? Your guess is as good as mine. Well, but there does seem to be a lot of uh, corollary between some of the uh, poltergeist activity and what might happen in the early stages of a demonic case, where perhaps it could be just, uh, you know, the beginning stages of that that stage where they just want to get your attention and they want to see how far they can push it. Maybe with these poltergeist cases, they realize they can't go any further. They can't get it into the stages of of obsession and oppression and eventually possession. So they move on to another subject. I I mean, there is some corollary between them, but also at the same time, like you said, we really can't be sure. Absolutely. You know, um, you, you can't be sure with anything with poltergeists. Well, and, uh, I guess that's that's good for you because that means you'll be able to keep uh, writing different books about them as as we <laughs> struggle to solve the, oh, the question. Oh, oh, the pleasures to come, definitely, definitely. No, no, pol- I mean, pol- pulse. You know, they, they challenged, as I've said before, they, they challenged the, the paradigm, the way we think about the world. That's why they're endlessly fa- fascinating. Uh, at, at one at one level, that you know, we we are drawn to them because they are so extreme. But on the other, a sort of conceptual level, I mean, you know, if they do things which uh, we regard by the laws of physics as being impossible, and then people consistently witness the same things again and again. It gives us a, 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 perhaps a hint that maybe there is something in the physical universe that we could investigate further to, to, to learn more about the universe. And that might sort of shift the paradigm about the way we think, the way the universe is organized. And that, I think, is the, is the greatest fascination, the greatest potential. If, you know, if, 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 if a whole bunch of really high-powered, um, open-minded scientists sort of started investigating pulse, maybe we, did, we would learn a bit more about the physical universe. Well, that's something we can certainly discuss after we take a break. Uh, If anybody has any questions for our guest, Jeff Holder, feel free to call in 508-996-0500-1877-996-1420. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Hello. Hey, man. You up? No. Wake up. I need to talk to you. I think your house is haunted. Hey, come on, it's 2.30 in the morning. I can't sleep in here, man. I'm scared. And by the way, our guest tonight, Jeff Holder, could hear everything you were saying about him during the commercial break. Right, Jeff? Absolutely, and I'll be taking notes and informing my lawyers later. Uh, so uh, It's so awesome, though, when we can connect with people so far away, such as yourself, Jeff. And thank you again for staying up uh, late or getting up early, however, however you swung it to join us here on the program live. No problem. My pleasure, as always. And if anybody has any questions about Poltergeist, the phone lines are open, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. And I think a, p- a lot of people's opinions about Poltergeist activity are, of course, affected by Hollywood. And uh, we, we see a film like, for example, Poltergeist, and people start to think that that is uh, the commonplace phenomena for a lot of these uh, cases, but that's not necessarily the way that it goes. Uh, it, it's not always... Uh, you know, boogeymen and, and clowns that are choking kids under the bed in killer trees. But uh, well, it is still pretty strong. 
Actually, I would contradict you. I think every case that I've in, in the world is probably in a, in a house built on an Indian burial ground. <laughs> and, you know, that, that, that's obviously the explanation. Well, where we are in New England, that actually is not out of the realms of possibility. <laughs> It may, it, for, you, for you, for you guys, maybe. But. It makes me wish that I had a, a little drop here I could play on the computer of uh, Craig T. Nelson. You moved the headstones, but you left the bodies, didn't you? Uh, but what, one case that uh, is particularly fascinating is this Egyptian case, Jeff. Yeah, uh, this is this is one of my favorite cases uh, from Scotland because it's got everything. It's got rich, rich, posh people. It's got. Um, uh, poltergeist, and it's got ancient Egypt. I mean, you, you can't go wrong. You know, it's journalist heaven, isn't it? You know, uh, this, this is in the mid 1930s, and this is a time when, um, following the sort of you know the the, the discoveries about Tutankhamun and such like, um, rich people would uh, they would tour the sites of, of, of Egypt as sort of you know fa- fashionable thing to do, and we have um, two people from Edinburgh. Um, uh, um, Sir Alexander Seaton and his wife, and uh, they bribe their way into a recently excavated tomb near the, the, the pyramids. And um, uh, his wife, his name is Zayla, uh, she steals one of the bones from the skeleton that's exposed in the, in, in the tomb and brings it back to their home in Edinburgh. You know, grave robbing, charming. But, you know, um, and then about four months after they return, Poltergeist activity breaks out in the house where they live in the centre of Edinburgh. Uh, it, it's the usual things, you know, furniture is tipped over, there are noises heard from locked rooms, uh, glass ornaments shatter, fires break out, uh, smoke, water, crashings, bangings, all, all, these, all, these, all these things, destruction of furniture, sort of the classic thing. Um, and what happens is that uh, Sir Alexander... Uh, was um, undergoing a very difficult time in his life. He and his wife are uh, almost splitting up. He goes to his his gentleman's club, gets a bit squiffy, um, blurts out the story, and lo and behold, it turns up in the local press the next day. And as such, it then becomes a sort of a fascination for the for, for the Scottish press for several months. And rather than hide away, uh, Sir Alexander plays to the gallery. He starts. A, Giving lectures to the you know the, the College of Psychic Science and uh, giving interviews to journalists and all that sort of thing, and um, the the idea develops that the bone is cursed, and journalists start talking about the curse of the pharaoh, the curse of the mummy. It's all sort of I mean there was no pharaoh involved, there was no mummy involved, but you know ne- never never mind the truth. When it comes to ancient Egypt, everyone loves uh, uh, everyone loves a good fictitious story. And individuals started offering to take the cursed bone back to Egypt as long as they would be paid a vast fortune, uh, uh, sort of sort of risk money uh, as as well. And this just sort of went on and on and on for several months. Once again, played through the press, who loved the whole idea of rich people, ancient Egypt, a curse, all that, all that, all that sort of thing. And at the same time, the, uh, the Satan's um, marriage was absolutely fallen apart all, all, all the way through this. And um, the story went, the story was put out in the press, was that finally the bone was destroyed by itself when it, when it, it shattered the cabinet in which it was kept. And it, 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 it itself was pounded into dust and thereafter the curse was lifted. 
That's not apparently what happened. What really happened is that Sir Alexander wanted to destroy the bone from the very start, but his wife, who had actually nicked the bone in the first place, wasn't having anything of it. So he waited until his wife was out of the house, and then he got his uncle, who was a Jesuit priest, to perform a blessing over the the, the bone, and then he pounded it into dust and got rid of it that way. So that's what that's what uh, that's what that's what really happened. Um, and there, ever since, people have been trying to work out what it was that was causing it. Everyone said, of course, the poltergeist was the the ancient Egyptian person whose bone they had purloined in the tomb. Woo! It's a big woo, this sort of uh, event. But, you know, the events didn't take place in, until four months after the bone was installed in their Edinburgh home. Seems seems to be a bit late to me. Um, one writer in, in the 1980s was convinced that the whole thing was a hoax perpetuated by Sir Alexander's wife as a way of trying to trying to push him towards the divorce that that, that both of them wanted, um, which is, seems plausible. Um, um, but my I, my suspicion uh, is that it was the poltergeist may have been a sort of RSPK from Sir Alexander himself because it was a man under great stress. Um, and you know they, they got divorced soon afterwards, and you know, perhaps that's that what was happening there. Um, and what I did, I looked at the descriptions uh, of their trip to Egypt at the time, and I sifted through all the excavation reports in Egypt in the mid 1930s, and I identified the tomb that they went into. Um, and so, if I ever get to go to the pyramids, then I'm going to go and visit that tomb because that's the place where the poltergeist bone of the cursed Egyptian mummy pharaoh nonsense uh, ended up in Edinburgh. Um, and um, but even so, I still have no idea what was going on. Well, you did mention how the press loved that story, and and for a variety of factors. And that's one question I wanted to ask you, uh, at least there, because I know how things are here in the United States with the media attention that is paid to paranormal stories. But as we get, you know, as we're part of the big World Wide Web now, we can pick up more and more stories uh, from over there in our Google news feeds and, and whatnot. And I want to ask you how the media treats some of these more recent cases of the late 20th century and early 21st century as compared to how they might have in the past. One word. Still, yeah. It's all. That's, 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 that. It doesn't get any much, any, any more um, uh, intellectual than that, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, it seems like there, there's more of a willingness to report them, but there's also more of the sensationalist side to them, as opposed to over here, where you know at least we're we're starting to take them a little bit more seriously. Uh, although I can still picture all the TV news reporters in my head, uh, you know, uh, cracking wise and raising an eyebrow when one of these stories are reported on TV. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 when, when Scottish cases are reported in Bordigas, everyone goes, ooh, maybe some, maybe some Scotch whiskey was being involved here. Yeah. Um, the, the, that's the sort of the classic response. The, 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 real, the real game changer was the X-Files. The X-Files had a profound impact on popular media in Britain in as much as in the sort of 1980s, if you had some kind of ghost or paranormal story, you might get a tiny paragraph with a slight sneer at the end of it. Um, with the vast popularity of the, of the X-Files, journalists and editors throughout the country developed an appetite for 
telling paranormal stories in in their papers. So that's one of the reasons why we suddenly see this 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 huge influx of stories appearing in the press because there was there was simply an appetite for it. It didn't mean that they were any better investigated, but it did mean that you could, they got more column inches. That 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 was that, that was the big thing. Um, the X Files factor has has kind of slipped away now. Uh, I, I I noticed there's there's less appetite within the press for that, and so we're back to. Um, which is the sort of absolute standard response. But we are, too, also in the reality TV era, where at least uh, there's a little bit more interest in, in covering the people that go out and investigate these cases. Uh, they still might get that, that stink eye when the stories do air, <laughs> but uh, at, at least they're getting some sort of ink and some sort of uh, play on television. That's right, but um, generally the, the, I think the place to go for serious investigation fact about what was really happening as a thing from the woo um, is to look at organizations such as uh, the Society for Psychical Research mm-hmm. or, the, or the Scottish equivalent and often they'll report their cases an- anonymously they'll, 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 they'll turn up and they'll say well we won't give your real names and we won't give the real address and we're just trying to work out what's hap- what, what, what is actually happening and then they'll write a, a quite a sort of sober report in, the, in their journal or on, or on their website and those are absolutely fascinating resources that's the place to go to look for when you look, if you're going, looking for something that's got some value I think you know, because it's been a very careful investigation. They try to eliminate um, sort of the obvious mundane uh, sort of sources, of, you know, physical activity, uh, physical elements in the normal world, hoax, misperception, that, that, that sort of thing. And they tend not to sens- sensationalize it. So once again, I would say those are the organizations where we, you find real value as the thing from the let's call up our local tabloid journalist and they will do a woo story. So the National Enquirer, not a viable news source. <laughs> <laughs> to, 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 be, to be treated with a degree of skepticism, perhaps. Uh, although we could say the same about the sun, but we just give the sun a little bit more credit, I think. Oh, shit. Well, you may do, sir, but I, <laughs> I, I, I could not possibly comment. I said a little bit more, and that's only for the, what, the page six girls? That's, that's probably <laughs> my favorite part. All right, well, Jeff, we thank you so much for joining us and discussing more with us about the world of Poltergeist. Again, the new book is called Poltergeist Over Scotland. It's available from Amazon.com and uh, wherever you can find these books. And Jeff's website is jeffholder.com. It's linked up on the main page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well. You've got over 30 books now written, Jeff, so uh, what, what's in the works right now? Um, well, coming out for Halloween this year, chaps, I have a, my first book on zombies. Zombies. Zombies, zombies, zombies from history, um, which is, a, which is a, a real hoot. I mean, you know, the, the zombie apocalypse is coming. You know it, I know it. So, you know, how do you prepare for it? Do you wait for the, that dull guy from 37 to come through your, 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 your garden doors to, to eat your brain? Or do you step up and try and take out from the big guns from history? So, you know, the book tells you how, where to find, you know, Henry VIII or William the Conqueror and, you know, how to take them on in, in a sort of an effective anti-zombie manner. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're looking forward to that and having you back on to talk about that. My two co-hosts yeah. here are already planning for the zombie apocalypse. They're fully fully loaded and ready to go when they're ready to we're start ready taking for the biters. Yeah. yeah. In, in a word, <laughs> double tap. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon.
Much obliged. A pleasure as always. Thank you again. All right, take care. That is Jeff Holder. And again, check out his website, jeffholder.com, linked up on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to check out some of his works. Uh, we are just about out of time here. We've got a few minutes left, and I, I want to let everybody know about what was going on uh, for the past few weeks when we were off the air. And we, of course, had a Legend Trips event last week, so we were unable to come on to the air and and uh, and actually have a, a live program. But I did pre-record an interview with Nick Redfern uh, about his new book, Monster Files, which I will be putting up on the website. I've just been super busy, so I haven't had a chance to edit it and put it all together. But we will get it up on the website and out on podcast for everybody. And the discussion that we had with Nick, well, that I had with Nick, was uh, just incredible about all these government files that mention cryptids. And, and Like Man Monkey? Yeah, the Man Monkey. The, the, <laughs> that story is in there. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, some of the the werewolf stories that are in there. Yeah. Uh, research into sea serpents and into the Loch Ness Monster. And, and uh, I think there may even be some champ stories in there, Matt Costa. So nice. It's, uh, it, was a, it was a great read. So uh, we will have that up for people to read, uh, to listen to, I'm sorry, uh, coming up in the next few days. And if you are new to the show, every episode that we ever do is podcast. You can get them from iTunes for free. And uh, usually we also have the video component which we put up on YouTube as well. But uh, we were talking with the engineer, and it was in here, Matt Costa. Yeah. It might be making it a lot easier to be putting that spooky TV yeah. out there. Yeah. It's kind of cool. I'm kind of excited. I hope, uh, hope it all comes through. Do you guys have action figures yet for Spooky South Coast? We're hoping to. That'd be cool. We're yeah. hoping to. Anatomically we- correct? <laughs> <laughs> in that case, the... <laughs> Private parts probably be on top of our heads, <laughs> but uh, we, we, I mean, we have been illustrated. Uh, Jason yeah. Mayo drew that uh, awesome yeah. picture of us yeah. for our, our seventh anniversary, and I've now been uh, character car- cartoonized uh, by Dennis Reno. So, uh, and I'm waiting. It's only a matter of time before the Matt Moniz uh, Dennis Reno picture comes out too. That could be dangerous. Yeah. Well, uh, he. Ufology is one of his main uh, main fields that he draws people in, so I'm surprised that he hasn't gotten to you yet, but I'm, I'm sure that he will. And then the best part about it is you can order a mug of really? your caricature from his website, gravestonehotel.com. So I'm thinking that uh, what i got to do is i got to order one of the mugs with my caricature on it and then leave it here at the station, and that'll be the mug that I use when I'm here on Saturday mornings and Saturday nights and just let it sit there with the cartoon of me and the WBSM logo on it, see what people think. So they'll be like, gee, this guy's only been doing this morning show a couple of, couple of weeks now, and he's already got his own merchandise line. <laughs> so t- T-shirts, hats, sweatshirts, those are, those are all to come. Bobbleheads. Uh, so well, we'll be back uh, next Saturday night, and this is going to be a, a very exciting show uh, next Saturday. I still have to figure out how we're going to pull it off uh, in terms of the logistics of it, because it's, it's going to be great if we can do it right. It's going to be a simulcast with uh, Lara Calhoun and her program, Resurrection Radio. And the idea behind it is we're going to be doing her show from 8 to 10, and then our show from 10 to midnight, talking about the need to have paranormal talent agencies, representation within the paranormal field. And if it works out, it's going to be a four-hour conversation, but it's going to be happening first on her show and then carry over onto our show. So we'll see if we can do it. Maybe she's forgotten about us altogether. That's possible, too. I also like how I just put a brand new battery in my headphones, and now it's dying on me just in time at the end of the show. I'm telling you, we were plagued by poltergeists tonight. (laughs) Between the things going on with the computer and now my headphones are completely dead. (laughs) 
<laughs> and all these different things that have been going on, I think that we've been visited by our own poltergeist tonight. So hopefully it doesn't get any worse. Uh, and if it does, we'll be sure to pass the story on to Jeff Holder for his next book, Poltergeists Over WBSM. So that, that about does it for this week's show. Uh, guys, anything that you want to add on? 30-odd minutes coming up this week? No. No, we've no? got two weeks off. Nice. Yeah. Little uh, little holiday vacation? Yeah, and uh, searching for more stories. All right. That's a big part of it. All right. Well, hopefully you find them. People can get a hold of you, too, right, if they want to share anything? Uh, yeah, sure. They can get in touch with us at uh, 30oddminutes.com. Yeah. All right, so uh, check that out. And, of course, uh, is there a spare connections this week, Matt? Uh, there's no spare spare connections. Um, they're taking it off for my birthday. Oh, happy oh. happy early birthday. Yeah. And it's um, our good friend Nick's birthday today. Yes, happy birthday yeah. to Nick. I sent him a, a message. Uh, I couldn't find Ted's Facebook, but I sent yeah. one to Nick. Yeah, um, Ted's Facebook is deleted, but okay. that's another story altogether. All right, well, that about does it for this week's show, then. Uh, so after some birthday celebrations and some holiday celebrations, we'll be back next week. Until then, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, for Andrew Lake, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg. Stay spooktacular.